seated. Jeremy was an unusual student. He was unusual because he was 12 years old and he was in the second grade. Jeremy was an unusual student because his body didn't quite work like it was supposed to. Jeremy was an unusual student because sometimes his mind was sharp and he could talk and he could interact and his eyes were full of life. And sometimes Jeremy's eyes were very void of any sort of spark and he would just sit there and occasionally grunt and sometimes drool would come down from the side of his face. His teacher, Mrs. Miller, was very frustrated with how to handle Jeremy. She was a teacher at second grade at St. Teresa's Elementary School. She loved her job and she loved the children, but it was hard to know sometimes whether or not she was connecting. Around this season of year, she decided to make a connection, not just with Jeremy, but with all the children. And she said, I want to talk to you about Easter children. And so she said, coming on Easter, you're likely going to be hunting some of these. How many of you hunted some of these this morning? How many of you parents are so looking forward to nap time later on? (laughs) She said, what I want you to do, children, is go home and get an Easter egg. And I want you to put something in it that represents new life. I want you to find something from around your house or your yard or have your parents help you and bring something to share with the class. And so the children were all excited and they went home and they came back the next day. In the teacher's mind, she only wondered if Jeremy was connecting that day or not. The children came excitedly back the next morning. They put their little eggs into a little basket that she had placed on her desk. At the appropriate time, she decided to teach them about the Easter story and then to open up the eggs which the children had brought. One little boy, she opened the egg and there was just a little piece of moss inside of it. And the teacher was very Creative, And she said, well, of course, moss represents new life and, and it rep- represents the life that you see it maybe on the trees or on the stones. And so that's very good. And she put it back in there and closed the egg and she found another one. And it was a little little uh, sprig off of a plant, had a little budding flower on it. And of course, she said, of course, this represents new life. And and this is part of springtime as well. And she explained how new life was what the resurrection story was all about. And then she picked up an egg and she noticed that it felt somewhat empty. And she opened it and indeed it was empty. And she knew instantly whose egg it was. And so she tried to very politely smile and close the egg and put it back and reach for another one. And Jeremy spoke up. What about my egg? You didn't say anything about my egg. And she said, well, Jeremy, your your egg is empty. And he said, well, of course. Jesus' tomb was empty. Isn't that what the resurrection's all about? And she was embarrassed. She, she thought that he wasn't connecting. She thought that he didn't understand, but... 
Not too long after that, Jeremy's health took a turn for the worse. And three months later, he would pass away. And the, the story goes that at his funeral that day, on top of the casket, were 19 empty Easter eggs on this casket. One for each of the children in his class. Because not only had Jer- Jeremy connected and learned the meaning of Resurrection Sunday, his classmates had as well. This morning as we come together, may we not lose sight that though this is fine, may it draw us to an empty place. On Sundays in this past month, uh, at Northside, we have been going through a series called Three Days. And in that series, we've talked about two very difficult days. Two very difficult days because they talk about very hard things. The first is day one. And that is Jesus' death. Guys, this is not advancing for me, so help me by clicking it just once. How Jesus' death and how it was described in Luke chapter 23. And though it was a very sad day, we learned that it was God's purpose and God's plan. Then we went to day two, which we called not Fearful Friday, but Silent Saturday. We were The disciples were scared and worried and silent. They, see, they thought that God was silent, but God's silent did not mean God's absence. It simply made it mean, meant that God was waiting to do an amazing thing. And then, if you just think about those two, day one and day two by themselves, they seem like a hopeless end. When you think about it, death is the same conclusion to every single story. If you could, in your mind, imagine a library Full of shelves and on those shelves full of many books, some very, very small, just one single page with one line written on it. Some volumes, many chapters, uh, very large. Those books representing the lifespan of every single human being that has ever lived. If you could go through and and just thumb through the pages of, of people who've lived great, fantastic lives, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. Martin Luther King. You could go through people whose stories you've never heard of, people you've never heard of, people you didn't know, and and read the interesting, fascinating details of their life. Great, small, known and unknown. Every single book in that library would end with four of the same words. And then they died. Every person's biography, regardless of what they've accomplished, regardless of what they will accomplish, regardless of how famous or not they are, ends in the same way. There was a man who actually wrote a book, not the story of everyone's life, but he wrote the story and it was called uh, this book and it was called Where Are They Buried and How Did They Die? And he went through and he goes through people who are who are, of course, mostly famous and well known Mark Twain and and. Uh, the Bonnie and Clyde and Marilyn Monroe, Lucille Ball. And he points out how they died and where they're buried. And you think, that sounds kind of like a morbid book. Why would anybody read that? I, my answer to that is people read weird books all the time. And he writes this book, and I'm sure that every single one ends in the same way. Now, if Jesus' story could have been put in Mr. Benoit's book... It would be very interesting because you would say who Jesus was. He claimed to be the son of God. 
And you can dispute that. You can argue with that. But there was no doubt that Jesus made that claim. So he was either, as C.S. Lewis said, liar, lunatic, or Lord. And then the question would come to, how did he die? Which is a well-known story, not just in the Bible, but outside of the Bible. The Roman cross was a very cruel way to die. And it was well witnessed by many, many people. And then the question would come to, where is he buried? Believe it or not, there are three separate places in Jerusalem that they call the tomb. And there's argue, arguments about, well, this is the tomb. Surely must have been the tomb of Jesus because of this. Surely this must have been the tomb of Jesus because of these reasons. But you know what I say? The three tombs have this in common. All three are empty. And that is the, the message of hope that we get from day chapter 3. It was not just who he was. It was not just how he died. It's not just where he was buried. But it's why he did it. Because of my sin. Because it needed to be paid for. And because of his great love. Because of his deep, deep love for you and I. And so I want to call you today to remember. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus is doing what you and I might do if we came to the very night before we were to die. We would have a a meal with some of our closest friends in this world. We'd gather them around and tell them everything we wanted to know. That meal that they celebrated was a very special meal. It wasn't unique at all. The the Jews at that time had been celebrating it for close to 2,000 years. Years for close to 1,500 years every year. It was called Passover. And Luke records it this way. Verse 19. He took bread and he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, they were familiar with the unleavened bread. They knew that it meant 1,500 years ago that they had to leave Egypt in such haste there was no time to let the bread rise. And God called them to uh, remove from every corner of their home the leaven to remind them of how quickly and how hastily they had to leave. But as they partook of the unleavened bread that night, Jesus said, this means something different. This has More meaning than you're aware of. You see, thousands of people had come to Jerusalem that week to partake in a Passover. What they didn't realize is that on Friday, they were going to get to witness one firsthand. As the Lamb of God laid down his body and his life for you and I. Because he loved us so greatly. And now we as a church, as we do every week, have the opportunity to do what he commanded us to do, to remember. Will you pray with me, please, as we remember? Father in heaven, in this moment full of Easter excitement and joy, as it well should be, full of thinking of all the things that lie ahead of us today, it's easy to become distracted, to forget this moment. But, oh God, forgive us. Help us now to focus. May your spirit draw all the things that are on our hearts and minds away. And may we with absolute clarity focus on the body of Christ given for us. That as we partake, 
we realize he put his body on the cross. Not because, not because we were so good, but because he was. Thank you, Father, for calling us back to helping us remember how greatly you loved us and how deep a price was paid on our behalf. May we remember in Jesus' name. Amen. That night as Jesus and his disciples partook of that meal, they were celebrating the Passover. And as they did so, Jesus took a part of that memorial feast, a, ta- a feast that reminded them what God had done. Because on the night that they left Egypt, they not only left in great haste, but they left because they were commanded to do so. The reason they were commanded to do so is that death had gone throughout Egypt. And only those with the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the top of the entrance were passed over. And they were reminded that death passed over them only at the price of a sacrifice. That night, 1,500 years later, as Jesus shared this moment with his disciples. Luke records this in verse 20. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this blood, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. 
You see, while he was on the cross, you were on his heart. And may we not forget that our freedom, our deliverance from death, came at the price of great sacrifice. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we know your word tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. As we are mindful of the blood that was sacrificed through the ages, we are mindful of the one perfect sacrifice given at Calvary. It was given for us that we might have a new covenant, a new hope, and new life. We are not unaware, Father, that that came at great price. As we partake of this cup, draw us back to the place where the blood was spilled for our freedom, for our hope, and for our eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
was written. It was written to end each verse on an unresolved note. A note that leads you to a higher place, to a place of expectation. If you've sung that song many times in your church life, or whether you're a first-time guest this morning, you came to the end of that song and it sounded like, man, there's more to it. And that's exactly the purpose. It didn't just stop at the cross. It didn't just end at the tomb. It would be a really sad song if we didn't include so now, now we get to sing as the song was meant to be finished. Brent. Death cannot keep his praise. If we stop at the first two days of the story, we lose something. Two words, two days started a hopeless end, but it was two words that started an endless hope. Two words that changed every single thing about your life, about his life, about their lives, about the life which is in us. You see, no one disputes, or very few dispute, that there was an empty tomb. Even the critics of Jesus, who did not want the resurrection to happen, admit that it happened. If you turn to Matthew chapter 28, you can read for yourselves the plot that they launched. As the guards came back and they said, they said you know, he came out of that tomb. And they knew that wasn't supposed to happen. Jesus himself had said that he would do that. And he knew, they knew, his enemies, that if he indeed, indeed did come out of that tomb, that he was convicting them, that they had missed out, that the Messiah had come and they had not only not believed him, but that they had killed him, that they had put him on a cross, that they had yelled, crucify him, crucify him. But if he came out of that tomb, his words, their words meant very little. But let's stop for just a minute and pause here and just pull off the highway and 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 think for a second about this plot, this idea that they said. You see, what they understood was that the tomb was empty. The problem is what they had to find was an explanation for the empty tomb. And the only reasonable, plausible explanation is that the disciples stole the body. And so that's what they said. 
They, they told the, the, the Roman guards that you're to tell this story. Uh, that we were asleep and the disciples came in and stole the body, which to me is a little bit troubling because there's a problem with the logic. I mean, if you really were asleep, how do you know who stole the body? But assuming that the disciples believe, uh, st- stole the body, here's what you have to You have to put forth a willing suspension of disbelief. And you have to believe the following things. First, you have to believe that fearful disciples who on Friday night scattered, fled, went into hiding. And that in a matter of hours, they became bold enough and courageous enough to launch a plan and a plot. And they came together, these uncoordinated, uncommon, ordinary folks, and they came up with a plan. And they went at night, and they either overpowered the Roman guard, which was virtually impossible to overpower one Roman guard, let alone a whole company of them. Or the guards were asleep, in which case they would have had to have been very quiet. Basically, the idea is that early disciples must have instantaneously been transformed to X-Men or ninjas or Chuck Norris to make this happen. Then, either when the disciples were asleep or they laid there beaten up by these, as the guards laid down beaten up, the disciples had to roll away a stone that weighed as much by some estimates as a small car. Then they went into the tomb and they took a body of a man that was probably between 120 to 160 pounds stacked with 75 pounds of spices and wraps and they hoisted the body and they took it out of the tomb and they buried it. And by the way, they were in Jerusalem where if only they had found the body, we wouldn't be meeting here this morning. There would be no point. They, they supposedly buried the body where, where they would never, ever find it again. Then they would spread this elaborate deception that was consistently attested to by hundreds of people. By, by, by some estimates, a crowd of about this size witnessed the risen Jesus in multiple places over 40 days. And according to this plot, they all lied and all their stories were consistent And then the apostles, who would have launched this whole plot, went to their death as martyrs, still attesting to this lie. See, it doesn't make sense. To me, it takes more faith to not believe in the resurrection than it does to believe it. To trust and believe that he appeared to many witnesses over a period of days, that the tomb was empty, even they believed that. And so what we celebrate today is a story with a different ending. Death was not the end of Jesus. And indeed, they believed and we believe that death is not the end of those who follow Jesus. Because though we go into the tomb, when we go into the tomb with Jesus, we are promised that we will come back out. And that the day of your death is not the day of your death at all, but really the first beginning of your eternity. We are so excited What is it? What were those two words that changed everything? You want to know, don't you? I can tell. You're hanging with bated breath. Acts chapter 2 is where you want to turn. 
Acts chapter 2 is this sermon given by Peter. And he's speaking to a crowd that was sort of hostile. And he says these words. Men of Israel. I'm sorry. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, signs, and wonders, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You ready for it? Because Peter's about to make a turn in the sermon. Because this is the point where the preacher is stepping on your toes, and you're like, oh, 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 and lots of people scowling at the preacher's hand. I don't like that guy very much. But Peter's about to make a shift. He's about to do something. He's about to testify to what God did. There are two simple words. Verse 24. But God raised him from the dead. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Nothing changes a story like those two simple words, but God. It changed the story of Noah. It changed the story of Jacob and Joseph and David and Solomon. It changed every single story in Scripture. When you come to a but God moment, he's about to radically change the way we see the end of the story coming. And you see, Sunday changed everything for them. It changed Mary from exhausted to excited as she proclaimed her Lord, Rabboni. It changed Mary, Peter, from a fisherman to a fisher of men. It changed Paul from a persecutor of the church to a preacher for the church. Those two words change everything. And not just for them, by the way, for us too. They will change everything for us too. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, starts out with those same two words. Verse 4 of chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You see, it's not just something that happened to Jesus long ago. It's not just something that happened to them long ago. It's something that happens to us today. It's what the scripture calls the gospel. The word meaning the good news. I sort of don't like that translation because I think the resurrection is the greatest news on earth. Because if that tomb was empty, it changes everything for us. And that's what I want to tell you and leave you with this morning. That the the message that was given to us in that old, old story changes everything. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where Paul speaks to a church who is having a lot of problems. And thankfully, that's not Northside But he was speaking to a church that was just having struggles in lots of different ways. And in verses 3 and 4, 
He says this about the resurrection. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Three days changes everything for us, and indeed it will change our eternity if we desire. It's not just a good story. It's not just celebrated once a year. It's every week because it's not just a good story. It's the good story. It gives us eternal hope. When the doctor pulls you in and said, I've got bad news for you. When the boss calls you in and says, I've got bad news. When your parents call you in and say, we need to have a talk. The hope that we have lies in Resurrection Sunday. Turn with me to one final verse, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and following. I want you to pay attention to what Paul says here. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus' story is our story, and it's a call. It's a call to action. It's a call to begin dying to yourself and to sin and to leaving behind the things that God doesn't want for you. It's a call to be buried with him in the waters of baptism because the scripture tells us Peter went on to preach that that's where you receive the forgiveness of your sins, the gift of grace, the the gift of the Holy Spirit in that moment. It's a call to be raised to walk in newness of life. That you get a second chance, that you get a do-over, that you get a mulligan, that your story doesn't end with your sin. It doesn't even end with your death. But through Jesus Christ and praise God through his resurrection, we can have new eternal life. And we can have new life here. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, the old has gone. And the new has come. Now this morning you all look really, really good and really, really dressed up. But I want to tell you something. And I got to tell you lovingly but firmly. If you're not in Christ, you're, you're, you're still looking pretty old, pretty shabby. And most people try to look good by themselves. But Jesus is the one who makes us good. Jesus is the one who gives us hope. Jesus is our Sunday best. Not our suits, not our dresses. Jesus, the resurrected Lord, is what makes us new. And if you're ready to be new this morning, we're going to sing a song. And I'm going to call you as we stand and sing. I'm going to call you that as we stand and sing that you can be raised in newness of life. That you can know that Sunday is the first day, not just of the week, but of your life and of your eternity. And if you're ready to put on Christ and be a new creation, I want to call you to that this morning. If you have a need, please come as together we stand and sing.